Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, church. The Lord is with you. I cannot tell you how, what a delight it has been to walk with you through the wilderness these past 13 months and to watch the work of God among you as people have been able to come back to worship out of the COVID crisis as your search committee has done the hard work of looking and for and finding a sense of God's will about calling a pastor and now we're on the very verge of that new chapter starting and the page turning and we're excited about that. You are, I am, Dr. Homer and his family are. It's, it is a great day and we are here in the presence of God to, to think just a little further about what that partnership is like and what it can be. The, the partnership that for, forms between a pastor and a congregation over time is, I, I can say from the pastor's perspective, one of the richest relationships and experiences available in Christian life. It is as long as both pastor and the congregation stay focused on the mission of God, as long as they tend with compassion and forgiveness and love to their relationships with each other, as they seek together to live as followers of Jesus Christ, when those things are happening, that relationship can be one of the richest and deepest ones in our lives. I know that from growing up in a church where I had one pastor my entire growing up time till I left for college, uh, uh, Brother Leroy Pearson, uh, that congregation loved him and he loved us. He was never mad about anything from the pulpit that I can recall. He seemed to just love Jesus and love the people and serve over a long period of time. Now, when I was, went to the first church I served as pastor, a little church in inner city Houston, North Main Baptist Church, Brother Pearson, my pastor, had been there in the 1940s as their pastor, right after World War II. He'd come back home as a Marine, and he served this little church, and it was the church's heyday then. They, it was large. The congregation was large and vital in the late 1940s. And I came there in the 1970s, and those people still talked about him as if he were the last pastor they had. And that didn't bother me because he had been my pastor and I knew why they felt that way. But it is a rich relationship that grows and develops over time between congregation and pastor when both are giving themselves to the mission of God and to their relationships with each other. Um, that relationship is not a business partnership. As I said to you a few weeks ago, we're not hiring a boss or a CEO to come run our religious organization. We are calling a shepherd, a pastor, a servant leader to come and live among us and lead us and work with us and keep calling our attention to God among us. 
It's not a business partnership, but a covenant is a better word that's formed around the great commission that Jesus has given us and the great commandments Jesus gave us to love God and to love each other. It's a partnership that's marked by mutual love and service as we work together. It's marked by faithfulness and forgiveness. It's marked by loyalty and sacrifice, by hard work and holy worship. It's a journey of many joyful miles together. And that's how the relationship is built. Paul called this relationship a partnership in the gospel in Philippians chapter 1, verse 5. A partnership. The word in Greek is a beautiful word. It is the word koinonia. You've probably heard that a few times. We use it in church life quite a bit. Koinonia. It's translated often in the New Testament as fellowship, but it also means partnership. It was used in the ancient world outside the New Testament to describe the marriage relationship. It is a sharing of life. The word koinonia at its root means common, meaning that we hold things in common, a common purpose, a common calling, and that's what builds our partnership. It builds our relationship. It's a beautiful word that portrays the mutual commitment of two or more parties to something in common, our partnership in the gospel, Paul said. On a few occasions, I've stood at, in front of a church with a couple that is are sharing their vows of marriage and committing themselves to a marriage relationship, and I offer them the vows, and they repeat them, and I ask them questions, and they say, I do. Uh, the promises are made. The documents have been signed. Legally, they are married, but in reality, they are not. They have had a wedding is what's happened. Getting married, becoming married takes many, many years of walking through all kinds of things together. Journeys that are sometimes deep and dark and sometimes incredibly joyful and sometimes incredibly sorrowful and experiencing life in all its dimensions. The wedding is over, but the marriage is just beginning and they don't know that yet. But that's how marriages become. They happen over time. The partnership is forged through experience together, of life together. So a few weeks ago, Trinity Baptist Church said to Dr. Matt Homeyer and his family, we've prayed and we have sought God's will, and we believe it is right for you to pull up stakes and leave family and friends and come join us in the work of God in San Antonio. And Matt and Kelly and their children said, we've prayed as well, and we concur that this partnership is one that God intends to bless. We will come and join you in the work as your pastor. The wedding was held, but the marriage has not yet begun. That's the work of the days ahead. The long, fruitful, sometimes arduous and joyful, sometimes tearful but rewarding work of forging the partnership Scripture calls koinonia in the gospel. This is the work that lies just ahead of us. Then we return to Paul for a few moments. Of all the churches that Paul established and served, those churches in that area of the world called Macedonia, northern part of Greece, near Turkey, were some of the most precious to him, Thessalonica and 
Philippi especially. God's people in Macedonia seemed to be his favorite because they responded so positively to the gospel. Paul remarks about how even in their poverty, they showed great generosity to others. They dealt with persecution and they were faithful through that. Paul admired them. And those congregations that grew up there were Christ-like and generous and faithful and perseverant and loving and helpful. But the church in Philippi, I think, as far as Paul was concerned, must have been the cream of the crop. You can tell in his little letter that he wrote to them, the letter of the Philippians that we explored last summer together, that this was so. They had sent financial and personal support to Paul on more than one occasion. They had contributed very generously to an offering he took up to give to the poor believers in Jerusalem. They were partners with Paul in this ministry of the gospel in many ways, and they were prayer partners and co-ministers in many ways as Paul traveled around the world, and they stayed up with him. They kept him in mind. So he writes the letter of Philippians back to that church. He's probably in prison in Rome at the time he writes these words. That church had sent one of his dear friends, one of their key leaders, a man named Epaphroditus, to deliver some money to Paul to help sustain him during this imprisonment and provide for him and provide for him news about the church. And Epaphroditus had come and uh, shared and checked on Paul's well-being. But while he was there, Epaphroditus got COVID or something. He, got, he felt very ill and he couldn't immediately return home. Uh, and so when he finally recovered, Paul wrote this letter of Philippians, gave it to Epaphroditus, and sent him back with it to the church. The letter is something of an explanation about why Epaphroditus was so long in coming back. It's a, it's a letter of gratitude and thankfulness for sending him and for sending the gift. And Epaphroditus had shared the somewhat troubling news to Paul that there were tensions in the church between some factions. And Paul writes back to them to encourage them to unity and to work on their relationships and to serve one another. So he opens this letter in Philippi, like he does most of them, with an expression of gratitude. But this one seems far less formal than many of the others, far more personal. Here is words from chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's pretty personal, isn't it? This partnership, this relationship has been forged over years of interacting around something they hold in common, which is their commitment to Christ and to his gospel. The one thing that Paul expresses gratitude for in his relation with, with the believers in Philippi is the thing that you all are just beginning to work on, and that is your partnership in the gospel. Paul's thanksgiving is for that the extent of that partnership. It was from the first day until now, he says. For Paul, that phrase, the first day, conjured up his arrival in Philippi following a direction that he had gotten from a vision from God. They arrived in Philippi, 
And it, it recalls up that first meeting where he found Lydia and some other women at a prayer meeting beside a river there, and he went and shared the gospel with them, and their, their hearts turned to the Christ, to Messiah, and Lydia opened up her home to him, and the church in Philippi got its start. The first days were challenging ones. It conjured up the idea of this desperate, demon-possessed slave girl that followed him around town, and he, he cast the demon out of her, and she became part of that. That little church. It calls up that hard night that he and Silas spent in a prison in Philippi and the way that the earthquake came and released everyone from their bonds, but no one escaped and how the Philippian jailer was almost going to take his life, but Paul shared the gospel with him and he spared him and the man took Paul and Silas home and bathed their wounds and fed them and he and his whole family became believers. That little church formed up out of all kinds of characters. And Paul remembers that first day and was grateful for them. From the first day implies that the partnership between you and, and Dr. Matt Homar has already begun. The pastor search committee established that relationship with you as they got to know him and then introduced you to them. But the other end of that statement, from the first day until now, Paul writes those words from a prison cell. He is geographically separated from his friends in Philippi, but still the partnership continues until now. He is constrained by bonds that keep him from getting up and going to see his friends, but they don't nullify the partnership. It has continued from the first day until now. They sent their gifts to Paul to support him in the work. They've shared generously, Paul says, out of their poverty, to help support the saints in Jerusalem. They've sent one of their own dear leaders to bear gifts to him and to bear news of his situation back to the church. They've prayed for Paul and served Paul, and Paul has prayed for them and served them. Their partnership has extended through times and trying circumstances and distance, but it's still intact. Our partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I encourage you to see the partnership that you're entering into and that you're going to forge together as one that is there for the long haul. And that takes work on your part, and it <clears throat> takes work on the part of the pastor. I believe deeply in the importance of long-tenured ministry. Uh, I spent 22 years with a congregation in, in Houston. I can't imagine having that cut short by any time at all. <clears throat> like long marriages, long tenured pastorates require lots of work, don't they? Uh, we can't split ways just over the first time we disagree about something. They require both congregation and pastor to grow and mature over time. And that's the value of them. Lyle Shaler was a United Methodist Church church consultant. And he was a firm believer in long-tenured pastorates, but he was in a denomination that often moved the pastors around every two years, and he was always calling his own people into... Uh, you know, into court about that and saying, this is not right. The pastor needs to stay. And uh, I, I was at a meeting with him one time, and uh, he said, if you pastors, there were about 30 of us in the room, he said, if you ever get up on Monday morning and think about resigning, you have two choices. Go home and take a shower and take a nap, or go home and take a nap and take a shower, and then get back to work. That 
we stay, we invest ourselves in one another. It's long tenure. A friend of mine said that the pastor he grew up with had been many, many years at this church in Amarillo, and someone asked him how long a pastor ought to stay at a church, and he said, long enough to clear up the mess you make in the first seven years. So long tenure is an important thing, I think. It's something to be anticipated, expected, not surprised by. And, and you have a history here of doing that thing uh, with pastors, and that is a wonderful legacy to lean into and to expect that you're going to build a relationship with Dr. Homeyer that's going to last a long, long time. How do you do that? <laughs> Eugene Peterson, whom I quote to you regularly, um, introduced me to someone else I quote regularly, and that's Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry is a farmer and a poet and an essayist and a novelist. He's about 88 years old now and lives in Kentucky. And reading one of Eugene Peterson's books, he said this, I enjoy reading the poet farmer Wendell Berry. He takes a small piece of land in Kentucky respects it, cares for it, submits himself to it just as an artist submits himself to his materials. I read Barry, and every time he speaks of farm and land, I insert congregation. Uh, that was my introduction to Wendell Berry. Who is this guy? And I started reading him, and I just loved his work. And I was reading him for a long time, reading him metaphorically like that as a pastor. And uh, because Barry believes that you take a piece of land and you invest yourself in that piece of land for the rest of your life, that's what you do. Uh, and so he, that makes a good image or metaphor for pastoral ministry. But... Back in 2007, Melinda and I inherited some farm property in Floresville, south of here, and we were concerned about how best to care for that land. And now it wasn't a metaphor anymore. It was quite literal. We had 88 acres that we were now responsible for, and we began to try to understand that it was overgrown and neglected, and we began to read and learn. Our reading focused for a while on what was known as sustainable agriculture, uh, as opposed to what is sometimes called conventional agriculture. It's not a complicated term. Uh, sustainable agriculture just describes a set of practices that are good for the land and good for the farmer and good for the community. To be sustainable over time, the land has to be sustained. Anything that drains or abuses the land is not sustainable over time. The farm cannot make it. Anything that, if the farmer can't make a living doing it, uh, then that can't be sustained, and the farmer's going to end up doing something else. And if it pollutes the community with its smells or its uh, uh, waste, then that's not sustainable. You have to have all three, good for the land, good for the farmer, good for the community. That's sustainable agriculture. And I was recalling Peterson's comparison I'd read that some years before and began to think, again, metaphorically, what's a sustainable relationship like in church? What is sustainable church? And I wondered if it might be paying attention to certain practices that are good for the congregation, good for the pastor, and good for the community in a very similar sort of way. And I think it's possible. Now, I'm going to list these as bullet points. We've talked about most of these things over the last several weeks, but this is 
the kind of the list that I've evolved, and it's worthwhile keeping your own list. What are some of the things that makes ministry sustainable for the pastor? How can a pastor plant himself or herself in a place and stay there for a long, long time? Some things need to be in place, both on the pastor's part and on the congregation's part, for that to be sustained over time. For one thing, it helps if the congregation is family-sensitive or family-friendly to realize that you have a pastor who is also a father and a husband, and that there are children to be cared for, and there are responsibilities there. And for it to be sustained over time, we need to recognize the seasons of life in which a family moves through when children are a certain age and need more attention uh, than other times, and support the pastor in doing that, and not expect the pastor somehow to un plug from family and just be pastor. That's not sustainable over time. Uh, that's one thing. The pastor's physical health matters to encourage your pastor to take care of the one body, the temple that God has given him, uh, to be part of the YMCA, to get annual physicals, encourage the pastor to take care of himself is an important part. <clears throat> it's, it's one thing to have a desire to sustain ministry over time, but if the body plays out, it's not possible to do it. That's part of sustainable ministry is to take care of the body that God's given us. Financial support needs to be solid so the pastor's not spending time worrying about how will I take care of my family. Regular encouragement helps keep pastors going. Supportive relationships do that. Encouraging your pastor to have relationships with other pastors in the community and other places where he receives the kind of understanding and support that he needs from people who fully understand the work that he's doing, encouraging that. It's his job to go find those relationships, but it's certainly a thing to be encouraged. Opportunities for renewal, uh, training, further education, uh, sabbaticals, those kinds of things are helpful to keep a pastor fed and cared for so that he can stay for a long, long time. And then personal accountability. This is something I would say to Pastors, you have to figure this out yourself. Pastors are notoriously unaccountable for our lives. People just assume that because you're a pastor, you're worshiping when you're in church on Sunday and your relationship with God is staying uh, cared for and all of those things. And we wouldn't think about asking our pastor those things. And that's not a healthy place to be unaccountable. It helps if pastors find ways to create accountability in their own life with others. And those are the kind of things that are necessary to sustain pastors for a long time. But what's needed for the congregation? What's good for them? I would say to pastors that if you want to sustain this congregation over time, they need to know that you are committed to them in love, that you've committed yourself to stay, that just because we have a disagreement about a thing or two, uh, you're not going to pull up stakes and go somewhere else, that it is a commitment to stay and to love and to work. It's helpful to congregations to know that, to know that you can disagree with your pastor and your pastor still loves you. It doesn't have to violate the relationship. Competent pastoral ministry, <clears throat> week after week competently preaching the word, week after week competently delivering pastoral care, week after week competently being involved in the leadership and administration of the church. You don't have to be a rock star in all of those areas, but you certainly need to be competent and to be honing your skills over time. We can expect that, and when we get that, that's sustainable. 
uh, we can stay together for a long time. Equipping ministry, I believe, is part of sustainable church. That the pastor is not trying to do everything himself or herself, but is equipping God's people to do the work of ministry and encouraging them to find places to do that. Servant leadership is part of sustainable ministry. Uh, dictatorships hardly are. We get burned, the congregation gets burned out like land that's not been cared for when over time they are dominated by a personality. But when servant leadership is in place and we are going somewhere together and we are partnering in it, we can do that for a long time and not grow weary. Having a clear vision uh, and developing that among the congregation is necessary for sustainable ministry. You've heard the proverb 29:14, I think it is. It says, without vision, the people perish. That's translated in a lot of different ways. But the idea is that if we don't have a sense of where we're going together, we grow weary and tired. We feel like we're spinning our wheels. But we will invest our time and our money and our energy and our gifts in something we believe is important that we're doing together. The pastor doesn't have to go up on Mount Sinai and come down with the vision, but the pastor's responsibility is to help discern that vision by listening to the people, praying together, and getting clearer and clearer about what is God calling us to do here in this place at this time. We need a vision for sustainability. We need something to keep us going. A missional perspective, now, that means that we have, to, we have a tendency, you and I, to keep looking inward. And we need someone to stand among us and say, but look outward. Look outside these walls. The church is the only organization I know of that exists for those who are not yet part of it. And that's why we exist, what we've been called into being for. And so the missional perspective has to be kept before us that we have been sent by God into God's world, bearing God's good news. It is helpful also if, uh, and sustainable when we have an example to follow. So when the pastor lives the life of Christ among us and we can observe that, we're encouraged to keep our faith in Christ and our walk with Christ fresh. Those kinds of things keep the, the soil, the congregation, healthy and alive and vital and able to be produced to produce. Anything else is treating conventional agriculture uh, sometimes is accused of treating soil like dirt. And it's it just a medium to make a plant stand up while you pour chemicals on it. That's not sustainable over time. Neither is it sustainable to treat the congregation as uh, just disposable fodder to run the programs of the church. The life of the soil of the congregation has to be developed. And these are the kinds of things I think that can do that over time. But in addition, for ministry to be sustained as you have for 80 years in this community and to continue to sustain ministry in the community, what is done at Trinity Baptist Church needs to be good for the community as well. Uh, and that involves things like this, that you just keep your mind, uh, that you want to be a good neighbor. And your the community association will help you keep that in mind, won't they? But they want you, you want to make sure that what we do as a church on our campus is something that the people around us are not 
irritated by. I, I, there are many large churches in places and cities where the parking on Sunday morning or the noises or one thing and another just is an irritant to the, con to the community around them. And we don't want to be that. We want to be good neighbors. And so finding ways to do that, to express our love for the immediate community around us is part of that. Uh, we are good neighbors when we engage in unselfish service to the community, and you found ways of doing that over time with food and clothing and other ways, but finding ways to unselfishly serve the people around us. When we develop vital partnerships with the community, with other congregations, with other faith groups sometimes, with community groups, and we've got people from Trinity who are involved in those organizations to serve, and they know that we can be depended on as good partners, that's one of the things that sustains ministry over time. Uh, having influential connections. Many of you serve on boards and uh, with schools and other things, those kind of places where Trinity's influence is plugged in into other places in the community is an important part of sustainable ministry over time. Transformational focus is part of sustainable ministry. That is, we are here to make the community a better place, to see it transformed. And when we find ways of doing that, whether it's transforming a piece of property that uh, needs to be cleaned up or whether it's providing ministry to help transform individual lives like the Alpha Home, all of those kinds of things are part of sustainable ministry to the community. One of the things not to forget is the spiritual impact. We are not just another service organization. We may do acts of service. But what our calling is, is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to this community. And we keep that in the forefront. The spiritual impact is we pray for and bear witness to the community that we're part of. And then just dependable responsiveness. The community needs to learn and to know that they can call on us when they need something and that it comes to their mind. I bet the folks at Trinity Baptist could help with that. And it, those invitations to help are indicators to me that sustainable ministry is taking place. They have learned that we are not just uh, an unwanted growth in the community, that we are a part vitally, organically, of who this community is, and San Antonio knows they can call on us for help and that we will respond if at all possible. Those kinds of things make a kind of ministry that is good for the pastor, good for the congregation, and good for the community over time. Attention to those kinds of things in the course of the decades ahead will forge a partnership of several decades that will bless the pastor and his family, they will bless Trinity Baptist Church, and they will bless San Antonio and the world. The partnership is forged primarily by determining to work on something bigger than ourselves, something more than our own, want, own wants and needs. Paul called it a partnership in the gospel, and that's what makes it possible. We are engaging in something that, that transcends our own lives, transcends the lives of our own families. It actually reaches to the culture and the world. And it's something that's been going on for centuries, and we have stepped into it as God has called us. We're engaging something that will make a difference for eternity. And that's where those partnerships coming together. The task of forming the partnership is the task of years, but it begins and focuses on the thing we hold in common, which is Christ and the call to ministry. And over time, it becomes more fruitful, 
more sustainable, stronger and stronger. As you do your part in finding the spiritual gifts that God has given you, the passion that he's placed in your heart for certain needs in the world, and engaging those in the ministry of the church, your partnership grows stronger. As you take responsibility for your church, like you would take responsibility for your family, making sure it has all the money and resources it's needed to do the mission, as you do that, the partnership grows stronger. As you pray for each other and care for each other and give thanks for each other and encourage each other, the partnership grows stronger. As you pray for your pastor and staff and the work they do, the partnership grows stronger. As you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in one spirit, contending as one person for the faith of the gospel, the partnership grows stronger. As you hold your relationships with each other as valuable things, and move toward forgiveness and reconciliation when there is any kind of division, like Paul's friends in Philippi, Euodia, and Syntyche, the partnership grows stronger. As you let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not regard equality with God something to be held on to at any cost, but emptied himself and took on himself the form of a servant, as you keep that mind in you, the partnership grows stronger. As you say with Paul, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing on to the things which lie ahead, the partnership grows stronger. As you learn, as Paul told the Philippians, to be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, to make your request known to God, the partnership grows stronger. I want to close again by reading again Paul's words to the Philippians. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. One of the things we do together regularly in worship is to come to the Lord's table and it has so much to say to us and teach us every time we do it. Reminds us of the death of Christ for us. Certainly that. Reminds us of his coming again because he said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you demonstrate the Lord's death until he comes. It's our hope is expressed here. But one of the things that is expressed in this act we are about to engage in again is our unity in Christ. Uh, we share something in common. Uh, communion is what it's called. It's that same word, koinonia. We share something in common. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing, a koinonia, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a koinonia in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread and we who are many are one body, we all partake of the one bread. This is, as much as anything, a symbol of our unity together. None of us in here comes to God on our own. We come because Christ gave his life. He broke, his body was broken, his blood was shed, and were it not for that grace, none of us 
would have relationship with God. So we come as common sharers in the body and blood of Christ. And we come as one body. Uh, it's interesting, Jesus took the bread and he, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And we're to remember him as we take that. But we are his body. We're broken. But he has healed us, he has forgiven us, and he has sent us to serve. So we come together to celebrate his gift and our unity. So as you eat the bread and drink the cup today, remember not just your own relationship with Christ, but all your brothers and sisters that are sharing the bread and the, and the blood as well, and that we are one with each other. And this is a symbol of our unity. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for your gift to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for his shed body, for his shed blood, broken body. Lord, we thank you that your grace extended to every one of us and that we come expressing our complete dependence on you as we take bread and cup this morning for nourishment of our souls, but also as a reminder of our oneness with each other. We ask you to bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.